and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we are driving in to episode 101, episode 1 of the miniseries Stand. The Stand. The Stand. The Stand. stand. So we've begun with a really big, a big one. Yes. Before we get started, how was your week? My week was very busy and there were lots of movies. Yes. Lots of movies. I went to the theater many times. So how was your week? It was good. Movies. Yes, there was. It was good because we were catching up. There hadn't been a lot of movies for a lot of time. Well, you picked two poor movies. I I picked two. I chose unwisely, (laughs) I think. The the film that... The films I'd chosen, I'd heard a great deal about, and I really wanted to see a good horror film, but what I wound up seeing was a really baffling film. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I feel a lot better about the choices we made this last weekend. We watched some... Not horror. I don't think Zombieland movies are horror. They're horror comedy, I guess. Yeah. And it, but we'll discuss that, I'm sure, more later, because they're, they're certainly commendable, or rather worth recommending. Sure, I enjoy yeah. them. Yes. And then what was the other thing we watched? Um, we caught up on was the Castle Rock. Movie we wa- no, but what was the second movie we watched? Oh, the Terminator. Terminator. Right. That's right. We watched sequels this week. Sequels. Sequels. But, um, All right, you want to get into this movie? There is, is so not much about story time here. traveling. Mm-hmm. But in this part... There's not a lot of story. It's more introductions. We're going to learn who a lot of people are, but not very much is going to happen. Because I think the entirety of part one uh-huh. of the Stan miniseries, which is called The Plague, uh-huh. uh, takes place in like 11 days or something like that. So let's, if you don't know what The Stand is and you've never seen this miniseries, I implore you to watch this miniseries. Uh, you might be mad at me at the end of it. But <laughs> I, I think that the miniseries is actually really good. I think that some strange choices got There are made. strange choices. And I'm not telling you to read a thousand-page book, which is your alternative if you want to know the story, because mm-hmm. the book is a thousand pages long. Let's actually start with the book. Okay. Well, let's start with our one-sentence synopsis. synopsis. And good this luck. Is, this is of the entire thing, so we barely know that this is true. All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing I just cannot get through my thick head. After a deadly plague kills most of the world's population, the remaining survivors split into two groups, one led by a benevolent elder and the other by a maleficent being, to face each other in a final battle between good and evil. Now, this is overspeaking because we only know about America. Mm-hmm. We do not go outside of the borders of America in this movie, in this story, first of all. So let's talk about The Stand. The Stand was published in 1978. It was Stephen King's fourth published book. At the time, it was his longest. It's still one of the longest. The original edition was 823 pages. It has been re-released... a couple of times. And depending on the edition of the novel, the events take place either in 1980 to 1981, 1985 to 1986, or 1990 to 1991. So those are the novel times. Mm-hmm. 
in the miniseries, we do not get a year. We only get a month and a day. And I guess we're to take that it's 1994. It's supposed to, I believe, be concurrent with the time it was made. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I imagine it would be. Okay. So... The novel was originally published in 1978 with a setting date of 1980. The original production, the original print of the book was abridged. So right out the gate, they were like, Mm -hmm. it's too long. Cut some shit out. In 1990, an unabridged edition of the standards published billed as the, quote, complete and uncut edition. Uh, it became the longest book published by Stephen King at that point. It was 1,152 pages long. That's basically 300 pages longer than the original. So it's a whole novel to itself. It's Yeah. Right. It was, because of the size of it, Doubleday thought that the cost to produce it would make it prohibitively expensive to buy. Mm-hmm. Like, we're talking about a $36 hardcover right. or whatever. Or At the time. The $78, or 78, the 1978 version of a $36 hardcover. Um, so he cut 150,000 words. Uh, I've never written anything that long. I'm in the midst of NaNoWriMo right now, and I'm mm-hmm. just trying to get to a third of that to be done. Like, it's... Right. Wild. He also updated with the 1990 edition the uh, time period. So it was a significant overhaul to the story. Mm. Uh, There's also a deluxe edition of the complete and uncut edition, uh, limited to only 1,250 copies. Does it come with an actual plague? It's like a vial of plague no, that comes with the book and use it as a bookmark. It comes in a wooden case. It's known as the coffin box edition. And then all all of them were signed by King. By Stephen King and mm-hmm. by Bernie Wrightson, who did oh. illustrations. In now this the, is the second time he's worked with Bernie Wrightson, right? Um, they did Cycle of the Werewolf together. When did they do that though? That oh was that in know, the eighties or the nineties? It was probably um, I imagine uh, yeah, I'll have to look that up because I, I just I tend to forget that we're working in a different kind in of order. Di- yeah, different order. This was probably after Cycle of the Werewolf. Okay. It would have to be, I guess, because this was in the 1990 edition. So, so they they signed both of the the coffin editions. So that's the stand book. It's a, mm-hmm. it's extraordinarily long, <laughs> and uh, it's one of my favorite books. I actually really like the book. Uh, what Make when you're to adapt the story, many storylines and whole characters are cut out mm-hmm. because okay. that's what you'd have to do. They this miniseries that we're watching is only six hours long, it's four episodes, but it's an hour and a half per, so the full running time is six hours and one minute long. They've been trying to remake this mm-hmm. basically since the 90s. Well, it's, it, there was attempts to make it earlier. 
than that. Well, yes. Right, with different casts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, George Romero was involved at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an attempt to use the enormous Las Vegas sets that were left over from a Francis Ford Coppola film. Oh, interesting. Uh, Which is, yeah, the everything culminates in Las Vegas. We uh, all end up going west um, almost entirely. And... What was I going to say? So Stephen King wrote this adaptation, this teleplay for this one, and Mick Mick Garris directs it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of, you know, this is going to be a common theme going forward is the Mick Garris Stephen King team up, uh, and it was originally aired on uh, ABC, and it was largely filmed in Utah. That would provide all the kind of landscapes they needed, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So. Since then, David Yates has been attached. Uh, he's the director for the, some of the Harry Potter films. The right? last Harry Potter movies. He and the screenwriter for those same, Steve Cloves, mm-hmm. were attached for a while. Uh, but that that was going to be a multi-movie version, but they left the project in 2011. He thought Yates thought it would be better as a miniseries, and they've been going back and forth with miniseries um, at one point, Christian Bale was set to play Randall Flagg and McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey was set to play Stu Redman. Uh, those That's have been removed, considering what's happened since then. Yeah. Uh, Warner Brothers proposed an eight-part Showtime miniseries. And that's pretty close to what's happening now, right? To set up the story that would culminate in Josh Boone's film, but in t- 2016, it, that was reverted. And now CBS has it. Okay. So CBS All Access is going to be producing a 10-hour limited series. And I don't actually know if they're going to tell the whole story in that 10 hours. Um, there's more than enough material to there, where if they expand on it, it, it could go on for a while. Right. They could just do the first half. Uh-huh. But the the hazard there is, will you be picked up to do the second half? Right, exactly. Well, there's been the same way that I think Harry Potter, that series of books being made into a film, was something that had never happened before. Mm-hmm. That you have the same creative team just going on and plowing through an entire series of popular books. No, especially with children. Right. So they had to be done fairly quickly. And I think that... The same thing happened with Game of Thrones, where you had the um, creators actually work in television format through a whole series of books. Now that that's been successful, yeah, financially successful, anyhow, yeah, artistically successful is another matter. Depending it's a on different who you ask. different question, yeah. But uh, since that's worked now, I think there's more of a willingness to invest that kind of time and money and care into a project. I felt watching this film, there were moments when it felt very TV. Yes. And it does. I wanted it to be more different or have a different sort of scope to it. But well, also we're talking about ABC and prime time, right? And and the subject matter is literally ninety eight percent of the world's population or ninety nine percent of the world's population dies. Yeah. Well, ABC, owned by Disney, right. although I don't know that ABC was owned by Disney at this time. I don't know time. who it was at the time. They were always. Buddy, buddy, though, because ABC has always been where Disney aired its non-special uh, mm-hmm. stuff. 
so World of Disney was on ABC, things like that. So they've always been close. Um, they're not going to get real graphic. Well, and that's what I, I think in some ways that it's missing. Yeah. Uh, it feels sanitized. Right. Yeah. All right, you want to get into... Sure, I'll get into it. ...what we, what we do? Mm-hmm. So the first thing we see is... Uh, some crows <laughs> on a gate, crows on a fence, and some razor wire. It's June 13th. We're at a top-secret government laboratory in rural California. And over the intercom, from inside of the facility, the there is a hysterical person trying to get the gate attendant to close the gate because he's having trouble. It's not closing mm-hmm. the way that they need it to close. And of course, this man does not... This is outside of this man's pay grade. So he, Please. being yelled at by right. a someone who is clearly hysterical themselves, as much as we don't like that term, this person on the other... He needed to stay cooler than he did. He's like, we're all dying in here. And I'm like, well, I... Can flee too. He goes. He runs in. He finds his baby. He finds his wife. They put. He puts him in a car, and they drive through an elect. What I presume to be an electrified fence, right, with razor wire. Because if it wasn't electrified, then the security at this facility is terrible. I mean, it was pretty bad anyway. And gets to going. He escapes. But did he escape? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So that's Charlie Campion. He started it all. A mediocre white man ruins everything. In California. A mediocre white man in California ruins everything. Right. So he, we find out then, basically in one day, drives all the way to Texas. To East Texas. Was it Arnett? Is the name of the... Yes, Arnett, Texas, where he crashes into some gas pumps and dies. Meanwhile, inside the car, wife and daughter, or wife and child, I don't know, the baby's name is like LaVon. It's LaVon, L-A-V-O-N. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that is a male or female name. So his wife and his baby. <laughs> well, the, he, stri- he runs into a gas station that Stu Redmond's at, right? Stu Redmond is there. He's our first And he has the presence survivor. of mind to tell them to turn off the pumps. Yeah, he sees them swerving down the road and he uh-huh. says, turn off the pumps, turn off the pumps. And nobody listens to him, so he turns them off himself. Right. Which is good because, yes, they would have exploded in a ball of fire. Mm-hmm. Now, in screenwriting class years ago, that was one of the things they told us. James Bond, the first time you see him and he's at Baccarat table, right? Not losing, winning. Right. Uh, the first time that you see Indiana Jones, he's in the middle of doing what he does. So, so we're seeing Stu with Spidey Sense. Well, what we're seeing Stu is being the guy who's watching something happening and putting two and two together. Right. And so he's hanging around with his kind of hick friends, but he's the guy who goes, wait, something bad is about to happen. Yeah. 
I'm going to shut off the pumps because all of you are standing around looking at this car. Gawking, right. right. And if you don't do that, then we're all going to die in a fiery flame. And I think that was a good way to introduce the character. It's not necessarily that he's a superhero. He just saw it coming and he stopped it. Right. And that's uh, an ability that you're going to be able to see and him. Because all he had to do was flip right. the damn switch. <laughs> and so he just had the presence of mind to flip said switch. So you see a very kind of practical or pragmatic heroism with him. He yeah. just saved everyone and doesn't think twice about it. Now, a scene that I think doesn't benefit from being on television at this time is the fact that, aside from the character who spills out of the car and, you know, infected, and the makeup here is very good, by the way. The makeup is very good. There's a lot of fever blisters. Also, let me adjust what I said. I said he did it in one day. He did it in four days. Okay. June 13th is the day that he, he flees. June 17th is the day that he crashes. Sorry, so I'm curious how many days the entire world takes to end. But, uh, it's like another 10. It's not very many. It's very fast. But the, um, uh, what I liked is the, the idea that, well, again, going back to what I was saying, what would have worked better not on television at the time is the fact that you have a car with a dead mom and baby. Yeah. And that image would have really hit home what was going to happen to everybody. Right. Which, we, do, they, do they not show them? They don't show them, no. Oh, okay. I presume that they showed them and I just didn't see them. No, you... They, mm-hmm. he says, look after my kids, look after my kids, and right. they do call an ambulance that's supposed to be there in 10 mu- minutes. And we do, and we hear them say, you know, they shake their heads at each other, uh-huh. but they tell him right. they're fine yeah. and help is on the way because they're like, well, telling him, is not going to help anything, and he's clearly on the way out. He, oh, the man also, um, Campion also says that he, he warns Redmond that he's been pursued by a dark man. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, there's uh, military all over the town, and they're uh, warned by the sh- sheriff, Sheriff Joe Bob, played by... Joe Bob Briggs. Which is an awesome, very good little cameo. And he's not bad, either. No, he's... <laughs> he I mean, doesn't have a lot to do. What we don't know about Joe Bob Briggs, or uh, some people don't know, is he is not Joe Bob Briggs. No, that's he a is, character. This is a character he's invented, and he's played for a very long time. So he is acting. Yeah. Every time that you see him make a public appearance, almost every time, he is acting. So it, this is just Joe Bob Briggs, the sheriff. So it was really, I thought that was very funny, because I recognized him and thought, wow, okay. Yeah. Pretty good. And uh, he he lies about where he's been. We are also getting interstitial cuts of Ed Harris mm-hmm. and one underling. And Ed Harris is a, a military man who is basically in quote unquote in charge mm. of figuring out what's going to happen. And it's from him we get a lot of the exposition of how. This thing is spreading. Right. So, uh, fundamentally, what happens is within two weeks, 99.4% of the world's population is taken out. Uh, it has a communicability of like 99%. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. No survival rate so far as, as far as they know. Well, at the this survival point. rate is like, yeah, yes, you either get it and die. Which is what makes. Or just don't get it. Stu very important. <laughs> In well, before the end of the episode. Yeah. Although he's not that important because I don't think they've taken blood from him once. Right. I okay, would think I out I, I would think after two days, when everyone else from that whole town has died, mm-hmm. you are draining this man of his blood <laughs> to figure out what he has that they don't have. 
that's not apparently what happens. I don't know. I don't, I, I can't figure that out. Uh, Alfstad is a doctor from the CDC, which we've moved to Vermont for no reason, except now that's where Stu starts, not in Atlanta, which is where The Walking Dead and the actual world mm. would tell you the CDC is located. Uh, he's up in Vermont. Vermont actually, honestly, is a smart place to put something like the CDC because okay. it's a very sparsely populated area. All right. Atlanta has a lot of people in it. So if something gets out, that's bad. Put it in a place where there's not a lot of people. Um, and then we're introduced to our various, the various people that are going to survive. Basically, that's what this whole first These are the good and is. evil team, so to speak. Yeah, but we mostly see it's mostly good. Although... There's flip-floppers. So, we meet rock star Larry Underwood. Mm -hmm. First time we meet him, he is driving a car with a personalized license plate to the one-hit wonder that he shall be. The license plate says, Dig Yo Man, which makes me want to punch him in his face. His song is Baby Can You Dig Your Man, a song that I hope that they redo for the new one because yes. it's not a good song. Uh, he has borrowed some money, so he has gone home to New York to visit his mom and maybe borrow some money from her, but he's getting, like, his song is climbing up the charts, it's on the radio, these things, so money may be coming his way, but he's already out. Well, as Dickens would put it in Bleak House, he barred against his expectations. Yes. And uh, turns out the world's ending, so I don't think his money's coming in. But I also don't think the people that he owes are going to come after him. So he goes and shows up at his mom's house in Queens, I believe. So that's I liked one his, of our guys, Larry. You uh, learn all about her right away, because her first observation is, did you hear my song? Yeah, you sound black. You sound black, yeah. Well, Thanks, Mom. she opens the door and he says, ain't you glad to see me, Ma? And she goes, should I be? Right. <laughs> I'm just like, woof. But she opened her door to him and she let him in. So right. they have a strange relationship, but they're not. I think what it means is that the insecurities that he has as a man throughout the, the there's a reason why There's he's a reason, insecure. yeah. And his mama, I think, is a God-fearing woman, more mm -hmm. of a God-fearing woman than uh, perhaps Larry Underwood himself <laughs> may be. We also meet Nick Andros, who is yeah. a, I'm going to use their terms, deaf and dumb. He is a deaf mute. Uh, he's somewhere in the Midwest. We actually don't know where he is. Uh, he is harassed on the road, by three Bubbas, I'm going to go ahead and use that term, y'all, watch the movie, you'll understand, and uh, they seem mad mostly because he ignores them, because he can't fucking hear them, and it's that same bully mentality mm -hmm. in so many of Stephen King's books, but these are grown-ass men. His, the main antagonist here, his name just escapes me, um, what I played Probably out Probably Roy or Ray. He, it's kind of unfair because this is, you know, um, Rob, Rob Lowe. Lowe. 
He's so beautiful, the y'all. The actor who is working him over good in this movie. is the last time I'd seen him before this, I think, was fighting Jean-Claude Van Damme oh, at the yeah. end of Death Warrant. So he's this monster, basically. And, and Rob Lowe And he has two friends helping. Willowy. So, yes, Rob Lowe. And wearing the biggest pants. Dude. I don't understand right. 1990s pants fashion. Parachute pants. They you were, jump out of an airplane and you land they safely. They were just so... Like, his... It's it's wild. It, he looks like he's going to be in a sack race in a hot right. second. It's why are his pants so big? But he, yes, he is very slight. And uh, and there is a doctor in the town. There's the sheriff played by Perpetual Sheriff. Uh, I want to look up. It's You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. I can't remember his name, though. Um. I don't even know how I would find it. Well, there's a huge cast list, but it's difficult because there's over a hundred main characters. Yeah, but his Troy Evans. Okay, who's just the sheriff, starring the sheriff as the sheriff. Yes, he's always in a uniform. Mm-hmm. I think like a uniform or suit, but he's been in. You know, he's. Detective Johnson in the Bosch TV series. Officer Martin in ER. Like, y'all, yeah. he's a cop. Trust me, Dusty slash lieutenant in the division. This man, he was a cop in Becker. I can't be more clear. Sense. This man plays police officers. You've seen him. You know him. Uh, and uh, the doctor... The town doctor. The town doctor mm-hmm. who is gay in like a very... Dr. Soames, William mm-hmm. Newman is playing this character. Who also played this kind of character in, you know, the intellectual in the small town. It yeah. seems like they did a lot of typecasting here. Yes. And I, I think, think that, they wanted, because these people right. are in this movie for exactly. two minutes. Right. You need to know who this character is. Get it? Move on. Right. We don't just know The sheriff the... guy plays the sheriff guy. Mm-hmm. The town doctor plays the town doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a film like this, it's not a bad thing. You can cast against type no. in other ways. Yes. But, but this in this one, way, it was right. like, we only we need you to see this person, uh-huh. understand this person, and that's all we can give you. We don't have time. Because that guy has to die from the plague. That's He's his gonna, job. Like, literally in the next scene. <laughs> I mean, I'm wondering what the casting... Uh, the casting was like for this film, okay, cough, cough again, cough again. Can you cough convincingly? How do these blister, fever blisters look right. on your lips? Just Perfect. act sick. But uh, Dr. Soames is great because he's very clearly a gay character mm-hmm. who is out because he's, he's joking about how he's going to get somebody to take off his shirt. Right. <laughs> Before he the starts night with the sheriff and he moves on to, to a, in a remarkable leap of taste. Yes. To Rob Lowe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Rob Lowe fingers the guys that um, attacked him because mm-hmm. the sheriff has a ring. It's a fraternity ring. That, of course, there's only two people in this town that have that. The, the sheriff, sheriff and, and the sheriff's brother-in-law. brother-in-law right. <laughs> so that is uh, who he rescues all of them. And then, and then that's when well, we don't see the sheriff anymore. Mm-hmm. And Nick is bringing them food, but 
bringing the prisoners food. Bringing right. the prisoners food. But two of them can't eat because they're not hungry. And the other one, Ray, is saying he's on a hunger strike. But I'm not sure he knows what that means. No. Actually, only one of them can't eat. The other one is like, I'm hungry. So he eats. Right. But they're all getting sick. And the doctor comes back and is like, um, this, I'm going to go to my cabin and wait this out. You don't have to stay here. Right. Like, Nick is like, well, the sheriff, you know, tasked me to do this. But mm-hmm. he's not getting paid. Right. It's not his job. But he feels beholden to do this. And he's like, and the doctor is like, you should go. Right. Let him out. Like, you, yes, I understand you don't want to leave them locked in a cage with nobody to bring them food. I get it. No, at this point, we are hearing... There's the radio. We're seeing television commercials. At there's different, television. Uh, there's a straight up television commercial, and you're like, "There's commercials in this well, yes, on because, the DVD." And, and, and and I was for like, anybody, <laughs> I want anybody who is in their late twenties. I want them to see this television commercial because when I was a kid, it was a joke how television com- commercials were geared towards white people and geared towards black people. Oh, interesting. And okay. Arsenio Hall made a joke once about this in his early career about being, why is it a black man goes to McDonald's and has to do the splits and dance and jump up and down to order a hamburger? And that is exactly what they're making fun of here. Okay. There's a black man, he's feeling cold, then he gets coldies and he starts breakdancing or something. And you're he like, was, I didn't even notice He's like that hyper-athletic. There's just this notion about how hyper-athletic black people are. So when I saw that, I'm like, oh, that takes me back to being a kid and seeing how, you know, you just can't order a hamburger. Yeah. Uh, So um, he does end up letting them out. Ray goes to attack him again, but he gets away. mm -hmm. He's also had a dream wherein he can hear and speak. Right. And he has met Mother Abigail. Who is the magical Negro. She's the magic. She's our magical Negro. The most magical Negro. Well, maybe not. We'll see with John Coffey later on. But Yeah, but Ruby D is playing a pretty magical ass and Negro. Again, 106, not 108, as I may have previously makeup. said. She has been aged up. She um, is Abigail Fremantle, and she uh-huh. lives in Hemingford Home, Nebraska. Because on the nose. Which with is, the names. Well, right. Which is one town away from the town in... Children of the Corn, but if mm-hmm. you go through the town in Children of the Corn, you can never get there. <laughs> so right, exactly. I don't know how these people plan on getting there. And so he, she says, "You got to come, you know, come, come see me, Nick. Right, you got to come see me." And uh, who else do we see? We meet Franny. Franny is in Maine. Franny is Molly Ringwald wearing a terrible dark wig. I yeah. hate it. I don't like it. Franny lives with her father. And she is um, plagued by the romantic affections of a young poet. Harold Lauder, who uh-huh. in the book, as we spoke about last week, right. uh, is a fat teenager. Right. Uh, in this case, we have Corin Nemec, who will forever be the not Corey Corey. He was he was sort of lumped in with Corey Heyman or Corey Feldman, even though his name is Corin. 
Mm-hmm. And he was Parker Lewis, I believe. Yes. He couldn't lose. In this movie, he can't win. <laughs> so he has written a poem he, so he, that it was published. So he brings over the journal that he was published in. And he asks Franny out. And Franny is, says no. Because she is older than him. Significantly. Like five or six years older than him. And he's had crush on her forever, apparently. And Franny lives with her dad. Uh, do we know about her current state? Am and I going to spoil the fact that she yes, is... We do know that she was in a relationship and she's taking a break from it. That's what you're asking? That's half of it. Right. That's what she tells her father at one okay. point. So we don't know anything beyond that. Okay. And that she is swatting away the advances of this young man who writes poetry. It doesn't seem like it's particularly good poetry. Mm, um, we don't know that. Well, I mean, they it's, do. They he's are, a child. <laughs> they are actually doing something that, sadly, I must admit I have done myself, which is finding a really bad passage and just reading out loud and going, oh, this They are. Work. They do do that, which is a little rough. I'm like... Just don't read it. You know what right. I mean? Like you don't have to mock him. He's doing his best. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you feel about him as a character at this point? Do you think? Because I know that things will happen that will change him into a different kind of person. Yes. But... At this point, I think he is just overreaching. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he's to the point of problematic. Which he, he becomes... asks her very. Uh-huh. Um, respectfully to go to a movie. Right. Uh, it's a very, he, what is it? Uh, it's Bergman or something right. like that. It's some I, I, festival uh, thing that just sounds very To all the people in the extra. audience, never invite a woman to see Bergman. You, mm. That's not the message you want to give somebody on their first date. I mean, maybe later on. And uh, yeah. it was just like uh, inviting her to see porn. Well, no, <laughs> no, 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 taxi that's, driver move. It's just that, <laughs> oh, well, there's likely to be. Uh, but um, what with Bergman, it's just there are very few happy endings. Uh, I mean, most of, I've seen four or five of Bergman's films now that were on TCM. I'm going, I really need to see more of his work. And it's mostly about madness, incest, and death. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't He's, think... He, here he's fine, uh-huh. but he is on the precipice of becoming an incel. <laughs> Which was exactly he the term I was about to use, right? Right on, he's on the knife's edge. If he, mm-hmm. if the internet was a thing, he'd already be full-blown right. into it. I think here he still thinks that, given his good intentions, mm-hmm. he can still get the girl well, and be happy. Guy, he's convinced that he's a good guy. And he doesn't know why he can't get the things he wants because bad people get the I would actually say he's convinced he's a nice guy, which is worse. By the way, I've just discovered that Joel Edgerton is playing Falstaff on Netflix. Have they made him fat? Uh, He is not nearly as fat as he needs to be. Oh. He's a slightly... Why can't we have fat representation? And Falstaff is the famous, one of the famous fat characters. Yes. But yeah. Like okay. I'm sorry. I was just disappointed with it. My crew no, playing what? Playing what? Although I, I think Joel Edgerton can play almost anything, but yeah, make him well, fat. Remember, Orson Welles put on padding to play Falstaff. So did Tom Hanks recently in uh, in an L.A. Really? You stage have to production. Be. I mean, there's so many comments yeah, about see, his size. It, uh, parts uh-huh. of it went viral, because, not of the play, mm-hmm. 
there was a man in the audience who had a a, a medical emergency, and while they were waiting, uh-huh. he was doing right extra stuff, and that stuff got leaked. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, to try and sort of keep everybody. Well, he has to be. I mean. Know, yeah, I recommend, okay, people in the audience, Chimes at Midnight, Orson Welles' version of Falstaff's story that he just pulled from the Shakespeare plays. Oh, he just... He just pulled all of Falstaff's parts. He, he wrote and Chris and Gildenstern right. to the thing. He winds up actually framing the, the film so that he's literally an anchor in the middle of the frame. And he'll tilt the camera and things. It's really very just funny. Just like, it's my story. To give the impression that he's just the most enormous, at the same time, big, like everything about him is oversized. Big, so right, It's a yeah. really great film version. Anyhow. Okay. So this is not, he's no, no false staff. No, he's no false staff. So, so that's where Harold Bowder is. He's a, mm-hmm. uh, he means well, but that's gonna, mm-hmm. that's gonna come to an end. Uh, he, he's not gonna, it's not gonna go well for him. Then we have Lloyd. Lloyd is played by Miguel Ferrer. Lloyd Ferrer. has Ferrer. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, no, Miguel okay. Ferrer. I apologize. Rest in peace. He is a criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a friend named Poke. <laughs> I'm sorry, Poke. Um, they go in to do a robbery, and Poke just starts killing people, and then, then he's killing people. He's he is arrested. And beaten by the police officer that takes him in, uh, because you know. Poke just went nuts. Poke lost. Oh yeah. Well, Poke. They, first of all, they mm. were clearly high on drugs and dr- like shotgunning beers in mm. the car on the way to this thing. Right. You know, it was if they don't listen, what do we do? We're gonna pokerize them. And there was no not listening or anything. It's literally he walked in the door and just killed this old woman that was right. standing there, like. And then, and then that, that was it. That was what was going to happen here. Um, so he is arrested and put in jail. Now, my notes are <laughs> unclear here. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just loving the idea that we had reached a point in in television where we could have a Puerto Rican redneck. <laughs> that yeah, was well, like, I, it touched my I heart. I think he is not intended to be <laughs> no. a Latin character. He is intended to be. White, right? A white man, and I, I bald about white that. man. At one point, he really pushed or campaigned to play Randall Flagg. Oh, that would have been interesting. That would have been I mean, a really interesting take. I think the problem there would have been having the one, one of the few dark-skinned people in the cast playing the devil. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I can understand why that didn't happen, but he would have been great. So when he is being arrested, he sees the silhouette of a man on top of a flagpole. Uh-huh. But when everybody else looks up, they see a crow. A crow, and that man is our um, antagonist in a Canadian tuxedo, Randall Flag. This man is wearing all denim, denim all the way down. That's what a Canadian tuxedo is. That was what he is wearing. Played by Jamie Sheridan. Jamie Sheridan. You don't really see him yet. Right. When you see him, he's make made up or in the dark. We know he has long flowing locks and that he is wearing all denim. There was a, some controversy, I guess, at the time about his portrayal of the character, that there were other actors who were floated, including people like Robert Duvall at the time. Probably older. 
Right, but he was too old at that point. I mean, he would have been fine for if they'd gone ahead with a George Romero version or something, but I actually like Jamie Sheridan. Uh, He brings a humor to this character that I think is important. Uh, He thinks himself, I think, an Uh anti-hero. I think that that is how he views himself. Uh, Now, he gets worse as we go. Right, right, obviously. Uh, but there is like a j- joviality about mm-hmm. him. Well, there was, I, I think, I remember him, he had a TV show in 1980 called Shannon's Deal, where he played an idealistic lawyer with a, an issue, um, a gambling issue, who's trying to make a comeback. And that was a really f- great TV show because there was this very flawed character trying to get back into his profession, which he was actually very good at before he lost everything. Um, he was really, I feel he's really good in here. And so far, he's After just, this, you don't see him a lot. He comes back, he's uh, in something more recently. Uh, he was in a, I want to say a procedural. Was it... Uh, yeah, he was in one of the Law and Orders. Criminal Intents. He was in a bunch of criminal, well, all of the criminal This should intent. have been, I know I hate saying that phrase because it makes it sound like it was somehow their fault, but it's almost like he should have had a bigger break after this. He's still, I mean, he's, he's working Arrow. all the like, time. Yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think he probably works as much as he wants to work. If I had to guess. Maybe not. Maybe he's a dick. Oh, he also does stuff on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So he's doing yeah, non-screen he's an things. He's all-around actor. Now, mm-hmm. I don't recall seeing Trash Can Man in this no. first. We don't. No. Okay, good. We then don't I'm not see, even going to There talk are about some him. major characters. We don't see Nadine. We don't see Trash Can Man. We don't see... Because there are characters in this first episode who die off before the end of it. Um, yeah. So... We've got Stu alone mm-hmm. in Vermont after almost being killed by the last remaining doctor just out of uh, spite, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stu is by himself with no, no shoes on, walking through a facility, a CDC facility. We this should describe this because I, I don't safe. think we covered it very well, which is that the neighborhood that Stu lives in, everyone's contained because they're the first people who actually were exposed to the yeah, they're the So we hear Ed Harris basically saying... It has 99% communicability. Mm-hmm. So that when they find four days later that this dude has crashed in Texas, mm-hmm. the idea, he says the idea of containment go, went out the window when he bought his first drive through hamburger. Right. So every stop that this family made, even if it was just to trade money for burgers, even mm-hmm. if they didn't have face-to-face contact, right. they've spread this disease, which is why it spreads from California all the way through the west east right but yeah, I mean, towards west right. to, towards the east so larry at one point uh is call, calling a girl who works for his record company and says hey i'm on a flight tomorrow get your best dress on i'm taking you out and she's like you probably want to stay back east because it's scary right. here in california it's not good uh because that's the epicenter mm-hmm. right and the entire town of Arnett is packed up and moved to Vermont in trucks. I don't know how they got them. They must have flown them 
Right. They well, we see helicopters. We see. Oh, okay. But because I'm like, yeah. ooh, because they got there fast and they die quickly. The they, whole yeah. town. They're put into a containment center, but Stu is the center of attention because he doesn't show the slightest sign of being nope. sick. Although I will say, uh-huh. this is probably the skinniest I've ever seen. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Gary Sneeze? Gary Sneeze. The thinnest I've ever seen him, and he does look drawn and pale. He looks you would have sickly guessed he was to sick. me. Okay. But he's not... I mean, the, the the this is basically uber flu. It's just the flu, except right. it kills you. And that's something that he brings up. It's like the re- there's a regular flu that doesn't kill people, which it does. Right, um, it can. Uh, it's if Henson. you are a weaker... Um, but... This one is just like a, a mutant strain that's incredibly powerful and virulent. Yes. And uh, and so, Stu, this is where I felt that the first episode kind of fell down a little bit for me. The scientists in this story are so kind of snarky and resentful. Yeah. And it starts with Max Wright, and there's a few others. Yeah. And the, they're wearing these things that kind of look faintly ridiculous. They look like enormous condoms. They're huge hazmat suits, that, but they're like in the shape of Gumby. Right. And so it's it almost becomes comical of them coming in to occasionally just hector him. And they yeah. don't really do anything. Yeah. And then like leave I the said, room. I don't think that during... Like, if he hasn't shown any symptoms and everybody else died, right. take this man's blood and compare it. And I think that the, the implication seems to be at this point that they're all falling ill, so there's no one to I've actually do the work. Have you not seen Outbreak? Right. Maybe maybe Outbreak came out after this movie. No, it in did. fact, it definitely right. did. Came out in nineteen ninety five. I know. But um, but yeah, it just seemed to be sort of ridiculous the the way that not, there's no actual science being done by the scientists. No. And there's very little. And there's like, oh, this is interesting. Watch as right. a dude just bleeds out. Right. And I'm just and like, so what? It felt very much. I think that uh, I will go. Uh, I'll extend myself far enough to say that. I think that writing scenes with scientists is not Stephen King's strong point. That might Having be remembered right. the golden years when mm. turn, you know, putting a clock yeah. under some kind of radiation is evidence that but time will turn back. Honestly, though, I blame editors for this, and mm. maybe even the director. Right. We've all seen procedurals. Right. We've all seen medical shows at this point. There are people you can call mm-hmm. to make this seem even in the I realm of plausibility. I think that the new version of this show, uh, or the remake that they're yeah. doing, will not have the same problem because the audience has seen 10... I mean, the yeah, no. medical We've shows were not as popular. There are 45 medical right. show procedurals every season on television. Right. It's... And There's, and a lot of them are on CBS, so you know most of the Midwest watches them. Right. I mean, so I don't Dick think Wolf that... Dick Wolf is making millions off Chicago Med right now. Like, right. there's no reason. But even between melodramas like Grey's Anatomy or something, mm-hmm. there is still some actual medical... Medicine, yeah. ...knowledge and, and medicine well, being practiced. they always tell you that mesothelioma, you're going to pull through. No, you're not. No, you're not. <sighs> Um, um, but yeah, so I feel that, that this will not be a weakness in the new show because the audience at this point is so familiar with yeah. this kind of program. And yeah, we've seen right. Outbreak. We've seen and other programs. there are that... people in Hollywood whose whole mm? job that pays them a lot of money, I'm sure, is right. to be 
medical consultants but I think and legal consultants at the time it was for less writers. of a less of a um between... they thought they could yada yada their way right. through the science but it's just frustrating because it's like really not even not even a pinprick well the audience for marcus welby was not the same audience for science fiction so as long as you kept the story moving along i mean i guess nowadays it's frustrating right it's you know we watch how many procedure medical procedurals at one point I couldn't even tell the doctors in the different hospitals apart. There were just so many young, good-looking doctors working in hospitals, saving lives from the most exotic possible diseases. Yes. You know, There's a penis fish by season three. Always yeah. a penis fish because by season three. If you have to go for a fish at all, it's fugu or penis fish. Kandaroo, by the way. Kandaroo, yes. Kandaroo, I know. I have friends who went down the Amazon, and they all showed me those horrifying pictures of what a kangaroo does to a human being. Things you can't unsee. All you have to do is not pee in the water. Well, all you That's have to do, literally all uh, you have to do. I wouldn't pee from the side of a boat in the water. No, I'm that uh, it'll it's find its way like, up there. I, I don't want to have it. anything to do with it. it. But apparently it, uh, there's a term in, depending on where in the Amazon you're encountering it, but there's a term in Spanish for like the terror of drunken men. People who swim, who are not thinking and... And this fish finds a way. If I knew that that was a thing in the right. same hemisphere I was in, there's not a level no. of drunkenness no. No. that I could reach no. that I would fucking forget. No, no. <laughs> this, this is, is like thing that could happen. you wear Henry VIII's codpiece or something. Just, yes, yes. No, if you I'm ever have to get in the water, I some sort of chastity right. metal situation with locks. Uh, uh-uh. nope. No. So okay. Uh, at towards the end of this episode, mm-hmm. uh, Ed Harris, after basically dictating to us that it's out of control, mm-hmm. the central will not hold. There's what martial law at this point. Rough beast slouches towards Bethlehem, waiting to be born. Yes, he does quote. Yeats. Ye- but he calls him Yeats. Yeats, Yeats? but I, that might be an <laughs> accent thing. I don't know. Uh, and then he puts a bullet in his head. Mm-hmm. So that's sad. Don't do that. Don't interrupt me. I'm acting. I'm acting. This was the f- the first time that I understood that Ed Harris and Matt Furrer were with two different people. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Because I always thought Matt Furrer was Ed Harris. They're not the same. But they weren't in the same episode, so maybe they are the same. Maybe they are the same. Well, look, he's <laughs> playing two parts. Franny's father passes mm-hmm. away. Yes. Uh, we presume, I guess, that uh, Harold's mother also passes away. Uh, Larry's mother passes away. Lloyd is left alone, basically, in prison because everybody around him is dying. Uh, We'll come back to him later. Uh, Nick lets the people out, has one more fight, um, and then he's on his way towards Nebraska. Mm Mm-hmm. As I said, Stu has to fight his way out of the CDC because there's one last doctor who just, I guess, is mad that he didn't get sick, so now he's going to take him out. Right. It's real petty. I'm just like, oh, yeah, ugh. Uh, he wins that fight, and then he leaves barefoot. There's a lot of people being shot at close quarters in the abdomen. That's basically most of the, the end of the episode. Of just... I also saw too much... Too much. Say it. I'll say what I thought I saw too much of. Of Gary Sinise's feet. 
That's it. Oh, okay. That, that no, you just see his less. feet in like four different scenes, and well, I, I'm not into feet. I so. have to say, what I did see too much of is too many really badly staged fight scenes. They were not good. Yeah. Give me the gun. No, you get the gun. Ugh. But ah. to be fair, <laughs> like, none are... of these people, first of all, half <laughs> of them were sick. Right. And none of them were fighters. But I just, no, it's not that they needed to pull moves out. I mean, it just, it was very slow and kind of stagey looking. Mm. And, and there was no... I see what you're And this saying. is my issue with Mickey Rourke's kind of direction of these things. And I'm sorry, because this sounds mean and critical, but there's not a lot of creativity about where he puts the damn camera. Sometimes you're just watching no, yeah. at, at the, the middle or long distance people taking really Like we're watching the coverage other. shots right. because it's they didn't weird. have anything better than he that. Doesn't There's not a lot of, and this is why I have a problem with his work, it looks like TV because it's not particularly well staged or choreographed, and by this I mean the camera movement. So it's just sort of there. And it's not particularly creative. And in things like fight scenes, you do need to be a lot more creative because if not, it looks like two people swinging and missing each other all the time or waiting to be punched in the head. I will say this. Uh, How much do you think that the budget for this was? I think it was probably substantial because there were so many actors. That's true. There are a lot of actors. What do you think? I don't Give know. me a number. I don't know. Throw a number. $10 million. Twenty eight. Oh, I can hear that. Million dollars. Equivalent to 40, 47 million last year. Right. So. I think it was less than they needed, frankly. So then the, the end of this basically has everybody going west. Mm-hmm. Everybody that we. Well, Larry is in New York. Mm-hmm. Franny is in Maine. Stu is in Vermont. Uh, Nick is in a state. <laughs> so we don't really know what direction he's going in. Stu also has a dream of Mother Abigail. Took him a long time to find her because he was lost in the corn. Uh, but he is also told to come. Mm-hmm. To I can appreciate being her. lost in the corn. That brought back memories for me. Yes, indeed. So recent. Yeah. Painful, painful memories. And who else sees Nick? I believe sees uh, Nick and Stu both see the mm. the dark man in, right. in in their dreams, but they don't talk to him. And Lloyd sees him just full out sees him. Right. Does Larry see him? I don't quite remember. There was a lot going on. You know who Larry sees? Larry sees Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Who is great in his brief role in this film? He is a street preacher, or no, not or preacher. Just, uh, I think he is a man who, you know, he's a uh, prophet of doom. Is what okay. He is. Yes, he is. He's ringing the bells. He's wearing a robe, carrying signs, and yelling at everybody who will listen that mm-hmm. end times are nigh. He's not wrong. Could be really yeah, he's to me for that. Matter. Super not wrong. No. Uh, and that is part one, The Plague. Now, I want to go back for a second to what we were talking about, the staginess of what Mick Garris was doing. Okay. Think about the difference between this and Salem's Lot. Okay. Where Tobe Hooper, as a film director working in television, still did a lot of creative stuff, a lot of creative and theatrical and cinematic staging with a camera as opposed to kind of what you're getting here. That's the issue that I'm having. A lot of it is just sort of 
flat and maybe it's because of the scale of the thing and you know get get the footage in the can right but it just seemed very much like the tommy knockers where it was sort of flat and there wasn't this is not to say there aren't going to be really memorable images because there will be mm-hmm. coming up well this is also i mean this is exposition dump right. right that the whole first episode is i need you to kind of know who these mm-hmm. five people are right Everybody else, don't worry about it. <laughs> I now, how did you feel? What did you feel? What did you feel? Okay, here I go. I'm going to start from the beginning with my analyses. Awesome. What did you feel, or who did you feel gave the strongest performance and the weakest performance? Mm. Because you have, in this episode, episode, we'll restrict ourselves to this. Because we can oh, do it the same way Lord. that we did for winners and losers. But I really want to know, there's so much drama here. Who do you think just kind of failed? either from going over the top or going too small? And who do you think was the most convincing person? I think... I I don't buy Molly Ringwald in this. Yeah, I felt that she was a weak link. She feels like she's doing a little bit of Mark Wahlberg from The Happening. Mm-hmm. She's got this innocence and this awe about her that right. I don't buy and I don't need. I don't think she was a great choice for this part. I think that's right. And I think that there was also kind of a she's, and this is not because I dislike Molly Ringwald. I don't. I think the thing is that and we talked about that when we talked about The Happening. Zoe Deschanel is a weird actress. Yes. And she fits when you're trying to cast a weird part but when you're seeing The Happening and she's just some somebody's wife it's like not using yeah. her to what she does really well and then trying to fit her into a part that anybody can play. Yeah. And, and I think Molly Ringwald is another one of these sort of oddball talents who is really good if you give her quirky, if you give her strange, if you give her whimsy. But trying to fit her here was kind of a part that anybody could play as long as they were cute enough and fit the cutoff blue jeans. Yeah, yeah, jeans. it just doesn't she, doesn't... she doesn't feel real to me. The other person that I've always had a problem with, and this is probably because I've never seen Mystic Pizza, honestly, mm-hmm. is uh, Larry. Adam Stork is an actor that I don't have any knowledge mm-hmm. of, and so he brings nothing... He's He was a heartthrob, I guess. He's the love interest from Mystic Pizza, which is a famous movie, but I've never seen it. Right. Um, so he, I don't have any kind of instant feeling for him. On the flip side of that, and this is what they want, I think Nick and Stu are the strongest. Right. Uh, Rob Lowe's very good. He's just very good. He's really good. And and again, I think we mentioned this last week, he was coming off of nearly having his career derailed. Derailed, right. And so he was a big movie star. Now he's doing television. But the way he did this television, he really yeah. pulled it back and gave a performance. Yeah. And I've always liked Gary Sinise. This is the first mm-hmm. thing I ever saw him in. Okay. I'd seen him in stuff before, and so I just thought he was a good choice because it's like, oh, it's that guy, you know? Um, and I, like... I don't love the version of Of Mice and Men that he was in. No, I don't. And it's not his fault, though. Well, it kind of is, because he directed it. (laughs) Oh, well, yes, from that point of view. I really (laughs) think... But he was fine. John Malkovich was was terrible. Yeah. I mean, he was really, really awful. It was... was, I don't know that he was 
yeah, I don't know if it was a, a problem with the direction or a problem with the casting, mm-hmm. but especially if you've seen the... If you've seen um, Lon Chaney Jr. just throw himself into that part. There was another good version with Randy Quaid, too, playing it. And oh, really? See... Interesting. That's an interesting yeah, choice. Yeah, it was Randy Quaid and I think... You have to get somebody small because Robert Randy Quaid's Blake. not that big. Oh, that's an interesting. Because Robert okay. Blake is fairly short. He's Randy Quaid yeah. he's not much taller than I am, but he they played against each other, yeah. and that was a really good team. That was uh, done for television when I was a kid, and half the lit classes I knew were making you watch it. And yes, sobbing teenage kid. That movie is oh, that yeah, story is it, traumatic. They, you know, that his version was critically acclaimed, but uh, I, the Malkovich of it all. I can't. No, it, it was uh, watching yeah. an actor just, we didn't need the lisp. It was, there were just so many things wrong one with thing, it that yeah. I, I couldn't get and behind. And he physically wasn't right for the part. He was no. obviously, you know, in lift boots wearing padding and angled it such a way, but it was one of those instances where you had an actor with a great reputation, and so we're going to go with it because it's John Malkovich, and he and just frankly, fell down. And frankly, you have to have a gentleness to the Lenny character. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole thing. Right. And there's not a lot of gentleness to John Malkovich. No, no offense to John Malkovich, no. it's not his deal. This is Anyways, not his part. But so anyhow. that's fine. I don't, we don't need to go through so the big thing. But In terms of who I thought was the winner, I I don't know. I, at this, I Yes, I agree. Uh, Rob Lowe so far is far and away doing the best job. I think Mother Abigail is I don't see Ruby D. I see this character, which is something. Which is funny because this is the first time I ever saw Ruby right. D. So you know, when that, I see her, that's, that's what Ruby D. I had seen is her to me. as a young woman. I'd mm-hmm. seen her doing films with Sidney Poitier back in the sixties okay. when it was really important to have a young black actress and she was young and beautiful and and then I'm looking at this character and I think the makeup helps you're taking back a step if you're familiar with her going, oh, that's her. Yeah, interesting. And she did a great job of not just being the magical Negro. She did yeah, a great job of but, being a person. And and But it is really, yeah. I mean, it's a problematic I know, like, the portrayal. Character itself, so. <laughs> but she breathes some life into it yeah. even in the scenes that she but has But she's only here. in two scenes in this whole thing. She's singing off key and she don't mind that. She is so much the people, my neighbors growing up. As a matter oh, of fact, she's my neighbor across the street who left yeah. us long ago. Mama T, Mama T, Tamari, who lived across the street. And she's like, in another 50 years, she'll be Mother Abigail or something. I don't know. But um, but yeah, she was so much like the mom in the neighborhood that was sat on the porch and kept an eye out for all the kids, which is effectively what she's going to do in this film. So I think, to me, she did a great job. But I agree with you, Molly Ringwald. I, I didn't see... I felt like this was just not her day or her part. Mm-hmm. And maybe as the story goes on, she'll find a way of filling it from the inside. But right now, they're not giving her much to do, and she's too too peculiar and special to just sort of be given a part that anybody can do. Yeah. Although I, I would argue that that's not... She's not bringing anything to it either. Right. But again, that could be the direction thing. Because right now, you know, you have Gary Sinise is not doing much other than just sort of really breathing life into this part and making it likable. He's just indignant, man. Right. Indignant and barefoot, as you pointed (laughs) out. Indignant and barefoot. 
Stu Redman. I loved his line, country don't mean stupid. Country you know, don't mean stupid, yeah. Which I thought was a great Country way. don't mean dumb. Dumb, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I took it even worse. Oh, my God, my prejudice against country. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I really, I, I liked it so far. I just feel that it was very stagey and weird, and perhaps now we're getting all these extraneous characters will be dropped off eventually, and we'll get down to the meat of the story that I'll, I'll have better feelings about people's performances or stuff. But uh, right now, it reminds me a lot of um, a lot of the sort of apocalypse novels that J.G. Ballard used to write. Yeah. Phase in his career where he was just the earth dies by freezing, the earth dies by burning. Yeah, and we do open um, with the T. S. Eliot. This yeah. is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. And don't fear the reaper. Which, as I, we were watching it, I said I uh, would really like mm-hmm. in the new one for them to use that song, but maybe not in the same kind of way right. that they did it here. And I mean, like. We've got a musician, Larry Underwood is still mm-hmm. a character in the new one, played by a black man. Yay, I like right. it. I'm on board. But like if he's noodling and is playing that song right. just quietly one night, that would be a fun way to incorporate. Because I think that that song is so iconic well, to you're, this You're able to be a little bit more nowadays. I think you're able to get away with that because in the old days you had to hammer at home all the time. Yeah, no, but I I mm-hmm. I like when they do Easter eggs to other stuff, right? right. It's one of the reasons I enjoy Castle Rock so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently, uh, spoiler alert, but not really. Uh, there's a lot of that in the new Doctor Sleep movie. Okay, well, I imagine there would have to be where like the bus says like Tet mm-hmm. bus lines or something, well, I... and it's all stuff that is King related, but uh-huh. not specific to the work that we're actually watching. Right. And then, well, then, of course, there's a lot of stuff that relates directly to the previous works because it's a sequel. So, yeah. I I wonder if King was influenced at all by the, I don't know that he would have seen it, actually, at the time, the English television show Survivors, which was 1975. I don't know if he would have seen that or that would have influenced his... uh, which is a t- uh, there are episodes of it on YouTube if you want to catch it. It is a story about the end of the world caused by germs from a, a lab. We forgot one person. Oh, who did we forget? Kathy Bates. She's in one Kathy scene. Kathy Bates is in one scene. She yes. plays Ray Flowers, originally written for a man, but mm-hmm. Kathy Bates became available and Stephen King wanted her. Right. Because she mean, did such a great it's job. It's like it's an hour and a half, mm-hmm. right? In and out, the, the, the role that yeah. she did. She probably spent more time in makeup than in actually delivering her Probably. Lines. She's playing a radio station um, DJ. Like a DJ or, right. uh, probably a shock jock right. type person. And we see one scene with her before the uh, military breaks in and shuts her down. Presumably right. kills her. Right. That's Because that's what you should do. When everybody is dying, you should definitely I hasten the death of everyone. see that happening now, though. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. But yeah. like... Ugh. But anyhow, yeah, Survivors, I think that might have influenced him. It's funny because he picks up on a lot of things in the era. I don't know that he saw it, but it had the same sort of similar feel. It goes back to things like Day of the Triffids with, you know, the the blindness plague and things like that. So I like that. So in the uh, next time, next up, we're watching a part two Mm -hmm. in case... That right. was a surprise. That is what we are doing. No, we were just going to skip right to the we end. Skip to the end. Uh-huh. Uh, hand of God, hand of God. Whoops. Uh, 
in the meantime, do you have anything you would like to recommend to our dear listeners? I saw two films this weekend, and I don't know which one you want to recommend. I'm not recommending either of them, okay, so I do whatever you want. I saw Zombieland. Zombieland! Which I really liked, and... I enjoyed, and I saw Terminator 2, which I also liked and enjoyed, but I, Exterminator 6, Terminator... Terminator Dark, Dark Fate. Dark Fate, okay. <laughs> um, and I like both of them. I think it is the sixth one, but I'm, I've lost. I Sorry. just, I really, I would like to, for Zombieland 2, give the recommendation to that one, because I think that there's a chance that it won't be, I mean, I, I think most of our audience is going to see Terminator 2. It's the six or Terminator Dark Fate. All right. The Terminator movie, the new one, Linda yes. Hamilton. She's back and she's bad. Linda Hamilton and Mackenzie, what's her name? Her name is Mackenzie Davis. Who I think is wonderful and the whole film is really good. But what I liked about Zombieland was watching this cast of characters and these actors who work really, really well with each other and have great chemistry um, kind of play off and fit into these sort of roles of each other. Yeah, there's some wonderful scenes in this movie, which essentially spends most of its time being a road trip film. Yeah. Where I mean, that's what the first there one are characters here. in the front seat and characters in the back seat. And there's a lot of Emma Stone. I don't want to give away any of what happens in the film. In the background, using her face to give like a running silent commentary on all the idiotic things being said in this car. Mm. And that was a moment where I thought, this is really, she's an amazing comic actress and she needs to, I wish she would do more of that. Not just romantic comedies, but full on goofiness because she has a great physical yes. uh, comedy ability. But her face is just, it's beautiful, but it's hysterical. The size of her eyes and the way that she shrinks her mouth. She was doing these takes all through the film to where I felt sorry because some of the other actors are doing stuff and she's stealing scenes just by rolling her eyes or trying to look away or trying not to laugh. And it was, she was really great. You also really like Zoe Deutsch. Who was very funny, who does a performance that almost qualifies as a pantomime at times because she's yeah, doing so much physical performing here. So, yeah, I really liked it. I liked the age-appropriate romances in the film. I liked the criticism of Berkeley, where I used to live. Yeah. And there's a very on-the-nose on the kind of criticism of, of the sort of student community that has no idea that they're in danger or is simply going to ignore it and live in peace and smoke pot. But there's a lot of really funny stuff, and these guys know each other really well at this point. So yes, Terminator Dark Fate, but I recommend if you can see Zombieland before it disappears, see Zombieland 2. There is after credits stuff. Mm -hmm. What did you like? Um, I've forgotten what I was going to talk about. Oh my god, I remember. So I'm not going to talk about anything. No, stop it. The end. No, I, I, I legitimately don't remember... Uh, but for anybody who's liking, you know, who's Stephen King, mm-hmm. is on board for Stephen King, uh, Castle Rock, we're watching yeah. its uh, second season. If you missed the first season, it's all on Hulu. Catch up. It's very good. Mm-hmm. You also do not need to see the first season to see yeah. the second season. Uh, it's reminding me of that respect of American horror story and that yep, they're self-contained. It's the same kind of, yes. Or yeah. the terror. 
the terror. Which, yeah, has nothing to do with terror season one. There are a lot of shows that are doing that now. Which is an odd thing. It's like it's carrying the franchise name or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're anthology series. Mm-hmm. And we, I guess, should thank Ryan Murphy. Thanks, Ryan Murphy. I, I think I his American Horror Story is the first one to really do that. And then he did American Crime Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we've got The Terror, uh, Channel Zero, uh, which we watched season two right. of. And this is an anthology story in a different sense than Outer Limits or Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock or any of the anthologies. There's seasons There's unto themselves, season uh, right. which is why I kind of like to, let's start referring them to the way the British do and call them series. Right. Oh, also... Uh, the Great British Bake Off for the new season just wrapped. So if you want to binge... I know who won. It's so I'm do I. I watched it. it. <laughs> uh, that's available. Although I will say I have a bone to pick with this season, and that is your technicals are too hard. Your technicals are too hard. Hey, guys, this is nuts. Your technicals are too fucking hard. So that's what I have to say about that. Like, there was one technical mm-hmm. where one person knew what the fuck they were making, and every other technical was, we've never heard of this. We right. have literally no idea what we're doing. And that is a new thing this season, and I don't particularly like it. Well, no. It's it, it does, it's not fair. It, it makes it feel like reality TV. Mm-hmm. And I watch that show because it doesn't feel like reality right. TV. So don't do that. But there is a beautiful gay love connection. And how often do you get to say that about And I love it. Michael and Henry are maybe dating. Follow them on Instagram. Anyways, so that's what I have. Oh, I know what I was going to... Here's... I remember what I was going to recommend. Rob Lowe. It was because Rob Lowe is great. There is a movie on Netflix. They've already started with their holiday romance movies. Oh, Lord. Because it's not October anymore, so fair game, I guess. This movie is called, like, Love in the Wild or something. I, Y'all will be able to find it. It's Kristen Davis from Sex and the City and Rob Lowe in a Netflix rom- romantic mo- Christmas movie. And I was like, wow, Netflix, y'all really are spending a lot of money on these things. Uh, there's also a bunch of elephants in it. Watch it, it's cute. Okay, Elephants and Rob Lowe. Elephants, Rob Lowe, and Kristen Davis. It's nothing wrong with that. It's cute. It's exactly what you think it is, but there are elephants in it. So, do yourself a favor. Okay. Make yourself. It's a. I, it's an hour and twenty-seven minutes of feel-good elephant love. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would criticize you, but I am really happy that Godzilla was uh, TCM's Star of the Month, and yeah. And Don't so, criticize like, me. I, I will watch. It's yes. literally just... Stomping on buildings. It's just makes me feel better. Okay, yeah. I know what this movie's going mm-hmm. to be. It's going to be nice-looking people being snarky at each other for an hour and then kissing for a half an hour. I'm in. Let's do this. I, I feel the same way about atomic-powered dinosaurs. So, so there. Yeah. And I need all of the and input she I ruined, can get she ruined for my nano me. I um, didn't. He looks like a sex toy. She ruined Mechagodzilla. <laughs> I said, here's Terror of... No, it was Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. And I, this big silvery 
robot monster, and she said he looks like a dildo. And now I said vibrator. I vibrator. did not say. I dildo. can't unsee it now. I'm just oh. looking at him, going, "Oh God, that would hurt," because I'm the greatest. There's sharp edges, but yeah, okay. Just wait. <laughs> All right, I think that's gonna do it yes. for this week. Mm-hmm. You can tell me that I'm right that Mechagodzilla looks like a vibrator. Although that hand, now I'm looking by at By email, it's latecomerspod at gmail.com or on Twitter at latecomerspod or on Facebook at latecomerspodcast. You can find us there. We will bring more stand next week and we'll talk about Randall Flagg. Randall That's how we're going to start. Yes, we're going to start with Randall We'll Flagg. start with Randall Flagg and we'll go from there. I remind you to take your medicine. We remind you that better late than never. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. I got a fever! And the only prescription is more cowbell! <laughs>